The following content is sponsored in partnership with Haymarket Media US. On today's McKnight's Market Leaders podcast. Artificial intelligence technology will drive improved clinical outcomes. And I think in a value-based care setting environment, they really go hand in hand. We've got unique patients and we've got to provide suggestions based on current standards of practice and guidelines, but also we need to make sure that we're incorporating all of those clinical conditions of that unique patient to to ensure that we have the best quality care and best outcomes. If you can keep your hospitalization of your long-stay folks low and your rehospitalization of your post-acute folks low, you're going to do really, really well in value-based purchasing. You're going to do well at the Medicare level. You're also going to do well at the state level where you receive enhancements. Welcome to another edition of the McKnight's Long-Term Care News Market Leaders Podcast, where industry experts share their insights and seeds of success are planted. You're tuning in to our latest installment of our Reimagining Senior Living and Long-Term Care series. Today's installment is How Technology is Shaping the Value-Based Care Evolution. I'm McKnight's Executive Editor, Jim Berkland, here with my co-host, Bharat Montero, General Manager for the Senior Living and Long-Term Care Business for Matrix Care. As we're looking at 2024 barreling at us at hyperspeed, Bharat, we really have some big issues hitting pretty hard and pretty soon, don't we? Absolutely, Jim. It's really been a tough year for our industry and uh, we're really honored here today to have these distinguished guests. So we'll uh, have you introduce them and get on with the show. All righty. Well, value-based care, as we're going to find out, is really poised to explode on the scene in 2024. And as we're going to hear, uh, I'm so glad that we have our two VIP guests here with us today to talk about it. Bharat and I give a hearty welcome to Allison Rainey, the head of nursing and clinical informatics at Matrix Care, and Mark Parkinson, president and CEO of the American Healthcare Association. We're really glad to have both of you here. Thanks. Great to be here. Thank you for having us. Well, Mark, I'd like to jump in right away with you because after about a dozen years as the head of the largest nursing home association in the U.S., there's no question you've seen a lot of changes. And and before that, as an operator, too, of course. Uh, So just to help set the stage, can you tell us a bit about how the long-term care industry has traditionally operated and what factors are driving the transition to a value-based care model? And and, and how does it differ from the traditional fee-for-service model? Well, first of all, it's really exciting to be here today. And I want to thank McKnight's and Matrix Care for highlighting value-based purchasing. I think the opportunities that providers have in value-based care is the most exciting development in long-term care in my entire 30 years in this for reasons that I think will come out during this podcast. The traditional way of reimbursing us did not make a lot of sense. Uh, At the fee-for-service model, we were reimbursed based on just some flat rate that was arbitrarily picked or on some rate that was somehow connected to our cost. The problem with those is that while we have people that are well-intentioned and may have used those to improve quality in facilities, there was never any real financial incentive to provide quality care. In fact, you can argue that some of the payment models actually disincentivize quality care because in some of them, the less that you spent, the more money that you made. The beautiful thing about value-based purchasing is value-based purchasing says, yeah, we're going to pay you some rate that will hopefully cover some of your costs, 
But in order to get more than that, you've got to perform outstanding care. You've got to have lower rates of rehospitalization. You've got to have lower turnover. Maybe you have to win an ACA quality award or any other number of objective measures that people have used to create value-based purchasing programs. So now all of a sudden, operators are incentivized to quality care, and we've seen that that's moving the needle on the quality numbers. Now, separate from that, there's a march to providers becoming their own insurance companies, taking on risk through ACO programs and through ISNPs. And there we have a complete alignment of the interest between providers and residents because we get paid for keeping people healthy. And getting paid for people, getting people health, keeping people healthy has worked out tremendously. The clinical results have been great. So when you add it all up, I think that value-based purchasing is an incredibly exciting opportunity and will really drive the sector for the next 10 or 20 years. All right. Now, given the challenges post-acute providers face and participate in value-based care, what initiatives or efforts are being led at the government level, especially by organizations like ACA and NCAL, to ensure meaningful inclusion and collaboration with post-acute providers? Well, our board decided probably 10 or so years ago that providers needed to have a seat at the table in value-based care. So we've really done two things. First is that we have actively lobbied both at the federal and state level for value-based purchasing programs, again, where operators get paid extra for providing great care. The best example at the national level would be the additional bonus that operators get if they have a low rehospitalization rate. But the second thing that we've done is that we've set up a population health management council at ACA, whose job it is to work with CMS to make sure that not just insurance companies, but also operators of, of nursing homes and assisted living buildings have the ability to participate both in value-based purchase programs, but also in owning their own insurance companies um, so that they can take on the risk. So we view as a core responsibility of our association, making sure that providers have these opportunities. Great. Now, Allison, tacking on to some of what Mark's been talking about there, are there tools or education that technology partners should be providing to help providers with the transition to a value-based care model? Absolutely. So I think, too, I, I like to just say straight out that I think it should be seamless um, from a technology provider perspective. I think we really need to evolve our products and, and the solutions that we design to ensure provider success, right? So our tools should be intuitive. They should capture the right information and support appropriate decision-making so that we are ensuring that we have the high quality outcomes that are expected. Historically, it's always been important to accurately reflect the patient, right? And make sure that our care plan was aligned with with that, but um, for reimbursement purposes. But care is increasingly complex, right? We see these very high complexity patients coming in. There's more data coming in. There's more providers involved in their care. We've got family and other key care team members, more care modalities. Patients are unique and they're very complex. And so we have to make sure that we're taking the right care at the right time for those patients to have those high quality outcomes. But in addition to that, we've got to make sure that we've got all that right data in there to ensure that we're accurately reflecting the patient in a more complex world now where it's not just about getting that reimbursement or developing the care plan, but also making sure that these patients are falling into the right quality metric buckets, right? So that we are actually, the expected length of stay is the right length of stay for that patient or for that patient population. So as as technology providers, we need to make sure that we're ensuring that we're supporting those that are providing care and capturing that information effectively. Um, I think there's a, also a secondary piece to this where we really need to make sure that we evolve our, 
our technology to support high quality decision making. You know, we need to be proactive. We need to make sure that we're identifying preventative care, probably more than we had historically in our area uh, with our seniors. So there's a lot of those those things that we need to contribute to. We need to surface only the uh, area that contributes to the information that the clinician needs now. We've got unique patients and we've got to provide suggestions based on current standards of practice and guidelines, but also we need to make sure that we're incorporating all of those clinical conditions of that unique patient to to ensure that we have the best quality care and best outcomes. Um, you know, and then of course, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that we, as a healthcare provider with all of these data sources coming in, we need to make sure that we're servicing the correct data and reporting for our customers and for providers, because within value-based relationships, providers need to have the tools at their fingertips to improve not only um, quality, but they need to be able to tell their story and they need to be able to have that data to really leverage, like Mark was discussing, the uh, what they know about their patient population as they enter into risk relationships. So all of that needs to be out there and it needs to be clear so that they can do what they need to do with their partnering. Yeah, no question about it. Now, Barat, coordination and patient-centric care are emphasized in value-based care. What role should technology be playing in enabling interconnected systems to enhance care coordination among various healthcare providers, including post-acute care settings? Yeah, Jim, I think um, you touched upon a very important point about coordination and patient-centric care. And a lot of the things that both Mark talked about with respect to population health and Allison talked about with respect to data, If you go back to the fundamentals, the responsible sharing of data across all the different stakeholders becomes absolutely key, right? And so at its very foundation, sharing of data responsibly through interoperability, through open health or open APIs sets the foundation on which a lot of other things can can be built. And so... If you take a simple use case, right, for a second, walk down this journey with me. A patient's care is directed and or significantly influenced by, number one, their primary physician. Number two, the specialist that they probably went to see. Number three, the hospital, if they ended up there first before they came to one of uh, the skilled nursing or senior living facilities, the care providers at those facilities that they currently are the physician group that that care facility has contracted with, the uh, therapists that come into that care facility, the patient's family member and the patient themselves. We already have about eight different stakeholders. Each of these stakeholders possess very valuable information, most often in silos, right? So if you think about your question, care coordination and patient-centric, at the foundation level, You want these different stakeholders to share data in a timely manner, in a responsible manner, right? But now you begin to overlay, for example, the collation and the summarization of this data from eight different stakeholders. On top of that, what if you could provide insights? Imagine the power of these stakeholders having a longitudinal record of the patient's journey and at each At each journey point, you have, for example, a summary of the prescription, a summary of the opioids they were, right? Now, the layer on top of that, you leverage artificial artificial intelligence to be able to make predictions. And then with the latest kind of innovation and technology, if we can create uh, predictive models and use generative AI to do an if-then analysis, 
Now the different stakeholders within the network can really optimize care outcomes at minimizing the costs by looking at the data holistically. So I think, again, value-based care, data, technology are kind of, uh, they go hand in hand, in my opinion. No doubt about it. Now, value is the key term in that. So, Mark, I, I wanted to get back to you. Can you shed a little light on any grassroots efforts by ACA and Cal to encourage CMS to develop programs that allow post-acute providers to share in the savings, particularly considering their exclusion as episode initiators and BPCI and limited financial benefits and ACOs? Yeah, I, I think the exclusion of providers and some of the early models that you just described was a real wake-up call. Um, that if we're not actively advocating to CMS that providers are involved in this, that we're, gonna, we're not going to be involved. And so, as I mentioned earlier, it was about five or six years ago that we formed the Population Health Management Council, got about 20 companies on it, um, and the, the provider companies. And, and the, the goal is to make sure um, that we're never excluded again. And so we actively meet with all of the folks at CMS that are involved in this area, uh, whether it's the value-based purchasing folks or whether it's the people that have regulatory authority over ISNPs and various insurance company products. Uh, and there seems to be a real commitment on the part of CMS uh, to keep providers involved. You know, certainly on the insurance side, the whole federal government wants to offload the Medicare program uh, as is indicated by the support they have for managed care. And they've been equally supportive to providers being involved in those as, as standalone insurance companies. So I think, you know, we weren't on this 10 or so years ago. We paid the price for that. I think we're on it now. And I feel very confident that providers for the foreseeable future are going to be involved in these programs. We're seeing more and more states as Medicaid increases uh, are being debated, say, yeah, we'll give you a Medicaid increase, but here's the deal. You've got to hit one or two or three or four or five of these various quality measures, and then we'll pay you. So I, I think that um, this is really now sort of embedded in the thought process of policymakers as they look at rate increases in the future. And I feel very comfortable that we'll be involved. Yeah, that's really a great evolution. I think almost everybody can agree something had to change there. So Allison, I want to go back to the bedside, if you will, a little bit. Uh, personalized care plans, they're targeting unique needs of the patient, and it's just crucial in value-based care, as we know. How can technology contribute to creating and adapting personalized care plans for residents, leveraging tools such as AI and preventive interventions? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so as I spoke before, health journeys are very complicated, right? There's so much information to filter through and to determine what's meaningful and what's not as a provider um, is becoming increasingly difficult, right? We've got more interoperability that it means more patient data coming in. So there's, you know, in the old days, we used to go through hundreds of pages of a patient record. Right now, we've got thousands of fields and thousands of screens as providers that we have to go through. And, you know, you layer in all of those additional things that we are finding out are very important to a patient journey, like the social determinants of health. And how do we embed that and how do we think through that? Um, but now we have these great AI tools, right, that are going to help us as providers to really surface only the relevant clinical data um, as we're trying to make decisions, but also subclinical changes that are meaningful. So as a provider, you might notice, for example, if uh, heart rate is out of range, brings to your attention, right? But with these advanced technologies like AI, we can really identify a unique patient's target range 
whether things are changing and then other things that are contributing to that, that we would alert a provider to say, hey, I need to look at this early. And as we know in our senior population, um, early is critical, right? We can really impact outcomes and take the best care of our patients and residents if we identify those changes early. So with that, um, those proactive tools are critical. But then too, translating from that, we surface that in a meaningful way. You can be proactive, but then also in addition to that, because time is is so important, you can really identify the plan of care that might be appropriate. So it's not telling, I know there's a lot of anxiety sometimes around clinicians where technology is going to take over and it could never take over, right? You have to be, a, a clinician has to be in there and make those final decisions and really analyze the information. But to be able to surface suggestions based on what's occurring with the patient and the patient's history so that clinicians are able to make quicker and more informed, better decisions for outcomes, right? And making sure that we're providing the quality that that we need. So I think as a technology provider, we have the responsibility to be very thoughtful in our design. And um, we work very hard to do that. We have a critical shortage of healthcare workers. And if we can design this in the right way, I just see this huge opportunity to improve caregiver fulfillment as well, because we can remove some of the mundane tasks that they're doing now and really allow them to elevate and and be at the highest level of their functioning or skill and and doing what they intended, right? To really impact patients and take care of patients in the right way. So those informed care plans allowing better care is just, I think, just another innovation that is going to... uh, to make a huge difference in in the care that we're able to deliver and, and provide for our seniors. Well, I think the old saying, knowledge is power, really is appropriate here, isn't it? Absolutely. Sometimes old sayings are good sayings. So, Elsa, I want to stick with you a little bit and also bring Barad into this then, too, because there really are unique challenges that post-acute providers face. So can you tell us a little more, how can technology bridge the gap and empower these providers to play really a more integral role in generating savings and improving outcomes with value-based care models? That's really what it's all about, isn't it? Yeah. So um, let me jump in for and kind of build off of what Allison was talking about. Um, the, key, the key phrase is really about how do you generate savings and improve outcomes, right? And again, like I did before, I like to use a simple example. And let's use the example today of patient falls. We know that falls can cost a facility a staggering $380,000 or more on an annual basis, right? We also know that people over the age of 65 are going to fall at least once in a facility or in their place of residence. And so going after falls as a use case is a great way to kind of give an example on how we leverage technology to really improve outcomes. So today, building off of what Allison said, there are tools that leverage artificial intelligence that can look at over 150 data points within the EHR and be able to predict change in conditions and stratify those patients that are at the highest risk of fall. That's kind of your first opening step, right? Now, when you begin to say, as I look at these different data points, what kind of care should I provide? And if I can create smart care plans, then I'm able to provide proactive care to these residents. And some of our early work, Jim, as you know, uh, have proven that in a cohort of about 200 plus providers, that have used these artificial intelligence tools for fall prediction and fall prevention, there's been a savings of about 8% reduction in falls. 
We have organizations like Pruitt Healthcare that have reduced falls by almost a thousand. We have organizations like NHC, where Allison came from, where they've reduced about 370 falls. So we've proven that by leveraging technology, by leveraging artificial intelligence, you can reduce falls. And then automatically that means that you keep the patient in their area of residence longer. It means that the provider can have greater financial benefits because they're not wasting the money dealing with the repercussions of that fall. And so that's just one example of how technology can really help. Now, when you begin to look at additional data points across the network, like we talked about earlier, and the different stakeholders begin to come together and share the data, then you can just imagine what is possible, right? I foresee us being able to identify risk of depression, risk of uh, onset of infection, and having smart care plans go along with that, onset of COPD, and just on and on and on. So again, artificial intelligence technology will drive improved clinical outcomes. And I think in a value-based care setting environment, they really go hand in hand. So so what do you think, Alison? Did he get it right? Do you have anything to add on to that? No, absolutely. I, you know, everything that he, he said is perfect. So I think just a couple of areas that I think also, um, as we look at integrations and who we partner with, it's important that we really um, partner with the right groups. I know there's gaps in, you know, services in some areas, right, that are critical to patient needs. So things like a psychiatric care and those kinds, we know some markets are void of specialists and those patients still need that, or those patients or residents still need that care. And so technology allows us to bring in those specialties to also impact the patients that we serve um, and make sure that we're delivering all of the care that our patients and, re- and residents need. So technology really is that venue to get that support as well. And then incomplete data sets, as we know, if we don't have a complete data picture of that complex patient, you know, we need to have all of that to impact, impact the quality of care um, so that we have that complete and accurate data. And going back to what Mark was saying about partnering, it's important that these facilities really know the patient populations that they serve and are able to tell their story and really are know their risk and what risk tolerance they can have. But you can only do that with data and you can only do that with sophisticated technologies that help you help you really know and understand that and have those conversations with your partners uh, across the continuum and uh, with your contracts. So. I think the Barack's example of the falls is a, is a phenomenal example of, of how organizations, great, great providers both, are using EMR to reduce falls. What we see on the policy side is that a lot of it's going to be about rehospitalizations and hospitalization. If you can keep your hospitalization of your long-stay folks low and your rehospitalization of your post-acute folks low, you're going to do really, really well in value-based purchasing. You're going to do well at the Medicare level. You're also going to do well at the state level where you receive enhancements. And I just don't think it would be possible to, to slaughter your rehospitalization rate if you weren't using EMR and all the tools that EMR provides. So just a plug to folks to really focus on hospitalization rates, because that's going to drive a lot of these payments in the future. Well, I'll tell you what, over the last six weeks, as a consumer who's seen his mother-in-law, 90-year-old mother-in-law fall and break five ribs, and 89-year-old mother fall and break a humerus, different states, you are right on, and I'm observing it from a different perspective as usual, and anything to keep those falls lower and rehospitalizations away, providers, you're going to have winners there. So, Mark, I'd like to 
bring this home a little bit with you. So from your perspective, how can collaborative efforts between associations like ACA, NKL, and Technology Solutions drive more inclusive and effective adoption of value-based care practices in post-acute care? Well, we, we're able to work with Matrix Care in letting them know where the policy is headed and, and what the members need. So as I just discussed, rehospitalization, hospitalization rates are, are going to be a major policy drive for the next 10 or 20 years. And so we're able to, to, to partner with Matrix Care and say, look, this is where our members need help. This is where they need products um, in order to do well on these different value-based purchasing payment plans. And so we really appreciate the relationship. Bharat, how do you see it from your point of view? I'll jump on that bandwagon with, with Mark. Um, if you think about rehospitalization, you know, one of the reasons we looked at falls is that's a big contributor to rehospitalization, right? right? So knowing that, hey, that's an area that our community, our our customers need help and working with ACA, we're able to kind of work on that as, as number one. Now, I'll take it one step further, and I'm really curious to get kind of Mark's point on this as well. I do believe, Mark, that there are so many problems out there for us to solve. And I believe societies and organizations like ACA and NCAL and others, if we can bring technology providers together and kind of parse out the problem and each provider kind of begin to solve a part of the problem and we begin to collaborate, I mean, let's put mission over anything else and solve the problem for an, for for the industry. Uh, now, again, I don't know how it'll work from a financial perspective and and competition and so on and so forth. But I would love to see an organization like ARCA kind of create an ecosystem or a, or, a, or an environment where some of the biggest technology players, hand in hand with the providers, can come together and solve a specific problem, even if it's in a small kind of pilot mode. So just. Curious, Mark, what are, your, what are your thoughts on that? And how do you envision this happening? I know you represent the, the nursing homes, but uh, we're, we're great partners. So, Yeah, I mean, we would love to do that. And I feel like there's a pretty good amount of cooperation that goes on between associations. I, I will tell you that our relationship with Leading Age and ACA has never been stronger and closer than it is right now. And I don't know that much about the relationship between the software and EMR providers. I don't know how well you all get along and, and, <laughs> and collaborate. Uh, I know you certainly compete pretty hard. Um, but I agree, you know, we're a mission-driven organization. I don't think any organization can be effective unless it's mission-driven. Uh, we've talked about Pruitt and AHC today, two, two examples of mission-driven organizations that do a lot of good. And so, I don't know, this reminds me a little bit of like the Beatles song, you know, Imagine or something, you know, if we could pull everybody together and, and imagine what we could accomplish, and uh, we'd love to be a part of that. Well, it sounds great, guys. And I just wanted to ask one more specific thing that came to mind. Mark, I'll ask you first, then go to Brat. What specific advancements in technology do you believe will have the most significant impact coming up on addressing financial and operational challenges faced by post-acute providers as value-based care models evolve? I mean, is there anything specific you can think of? Well, I'd be interested in Barat's thought and, and Allison's as well. I'm, I'm intrigued by predictive analytics and trying to figure out who the people are that might fall or who, who might be developing an infection or might be having problems with incontinence that will create issues and what interventions are possible to keep those conditions from occurring. 
because you know we have all sorts of demographic challenges. We're going to have you know, lots and lots of customers, but fewer people available to take care of them. And not just because predictive analytics could create great clinical results, but because it's going to be necessary with these changing demographics. I'm really intrigued by the potential for that. Yeah, uh, I would agree, Mark. I think you know from a technology perspective, go back to the big challenges our industry faces, a huge labor shortage. And so if you're able to leverage technology to automatically populate the EHR, to automatically submit, scrub and submit the MDS, right? Those provide kind of efficiency plays or efficiency benefits. But I think I think the question you were asking, Jim, is, you know, what do we see kind of on the horizon or what, what disruption do we see? Everybody's been talking about AI and now, more importantly, generative AI. That's almost the next kind of level. I envision a world where A, everything is seamless and the different stakeholders across the network can share data instantly across the network, right? Of course, it has to be responsible, it has to be controlled, et cetera, but the ability to share data instantly across the net network and then have generative AI-based tools able to not just predict, Mark, but also kind of if-then, right? And do an if-then in real time across the network, I think is the next frontier that, that at least organizations like Matrix Care and ResMed are rushing towards. And um, I believe that's going to really transform how healthcare operates. Uh, and then you overlay kind of ambient sensors. Imagine a smart sniff room right, where activities are monitored, the EHR is automatically updated, data is shared across the network, and what-if type analysis can happen in real time distributed across the network. That's really what um, I see happening, and uh, I can't wait to get there. Allison, what piques your curiosity if I have to ask about specific technologies coming up? Being a clinician, I think I, I agree with both of these gentlemen for sure. But I think um, on the on the predictive analytics, knowing just from being, you know, I, I was in the trenches. And I think if you can really impact those patients well, but prevent those falls or prevent rehospitalizations, those things are a huge burden on our on our not just the patient and the patient's family, but also the caregivers. And so if we can prevent and be proactive in our approach and take care of the patient prior to those outcomes, that's going to do a lot for for the clinicians and for those frontline workers. If we can really kind of contain those and manage those in a better way, that's it's going to be better for everybody. And so I think it's very important that as we evolve, we develop those in the right way. I think that the thing that I would caution everybody as we develop these is that we make sure that we are, we have the outcomes that we're intending, right? Because it's, we have all of this excitement around AI and predictive analytics, but um, we need to make sure that the outcomes that we're, we intend to deliver are actually occurring. And um, so I think that's, you know, it's, it's evolving. It's evolving as we, as we work, but certainly very exciting, very exciting time. I think it's going to, I think it's really going to help even our industry with our caregivers as far as loving what they do again. Right. I'm hopeful that that helps, um, helps some of that as well. So people will love to come into the environment that we, we care for because our seniors, there's, there's, you know, there's lots of great populations to serve, but uh, my heart goes to the seniors and I know a lot of other people do too. So, well, wow. is all I can say on that. I wouldn't try to follow up just so well put. 
Thank you very much. We really want to give our thanks to Allison Rainey and Mark Parkinson for sharing some great perspective on one of the most intriguing movements I think we're going to see in 2024. There's there's really no escaping this, is there, Bharat? Oh, no, there isn't. Value-based care is here. It's coming on uh, full force. It's here to stay. And I think it is really better for the individual. And if done right, it's better for the provider as well. So ready or not, here it comes. Hey, that's the greatest send off as I've ever heard, I think. And while I'm giving out thanks, we want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to this edition of the McKnight's Long-Term Care News Market Leaders Podcast. We look forward to seeing you again. Please check out our various other archived installments wherever you get your podcasts. Now, on behalf of my co-host, Bharat Montero, and our entire production team, this is Jim Berklin wishing you good health and outstanding days ahead. <laughs> <laughs>